Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in History. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. I just had the great pleasure of talking with Tim Brooke about his brand new book, Mr. Selden's Map of China, Decoding the Secrets of a Vanished Cartographer. This was published in 2013 with House of Anansi Press. This time I'm going to do things a little differently, and I'm going to start at the end. And I'm going to read you the last two sentences of this book. A light installed beneath the floor illuminates the sunken stone. If the custodian has neglected to turn it on, the switch is on the pillar behind you. Now, this isn't the way we typically expect a history book to end, and for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, you'll notice, I hope, that the language was very alive, very elegant, and very vibrant, and this is characteristic of the way that Tim has written the book. It's an extraordinary pleasure to read, and at many moments, it reads as much like a good mystery novel in the best possible way as a history book. It's just a wonderful bringing together of writerly and historical modes of inquiry and modes of writing. It's really wonderful. At the same time, the last two sentences of the book directly speak to you and to me and invite us as readers to be part of the story. And this is a story that's very much a mystery. It's a mystery that opens up questions about a map that ended up in the Bodleian Library at Oxford and ultimately in the hands of or in front of the eyes of Tim Brooke, the historian, historian of world history of China and of many other things. So the book becomes a series of intertangled and intertwined relationships and storylines that try to get at the answers, or if not the answers, at least a fully um, or a, a fully fleshed out elaboration of a set of questions about this document as an image, as an object, as a manifestation of a particular moment or set of moments of history. Who made it? Where was it made? When was it made? How did it ultimately get from the hands of the person who we don't know anything about, who may have been a merchant in China, who may not have, through the collections or um, hands or, or ownership of people, including Samuel Purchase, including various seafarers and merchants, including some scholars of Oriental studies, and ultimately into this library collection at Oxford. And more to the point, why does any of this matter for our understanding of world history, of how to write it, how to read it, how to relate it to contemporary political and geopolitical situations right now. And I'll tell you that it does matter. It matters for all of these things. It's also a huge pleasure to read, um, as you'll hear about in the next several minutes. So I hope you enjoy. I hope you have a chance to get the book and read it. It's really um, very much worth your time. It's a wonderful, wonderfully pleasurable read. And I hope you enjoy the conversation to come. I know I did. We're here today with Tim Brooke to talk about his new book, Mr. Selden's Map of China, Decoding the Secrets of a Vanished Cartographer. Welcome to New Books in History, Tim. It's great to have you back, and thanks for making time to talk with me about your latest new book. Oh, it's a privilege for me, Carla. <laughs> So we've talked before when we talked about one of your previous books about how you came to work on China, but we haven't talked about this project. So let's dive right in. 
The book that we're talking about today is both about a map and also not about a map. It explores the history of a map of China in Oxford's Bodleian Library, along with the social and cultural worlds from which that map likely emerged, and the kinds of people whose lives and stories intersected with it. So, to start us off, how did you come to work on this map? How did you come to this topic? The map came to me. I moved to Oxford in 2007 and was was teaching there for a couple of years, and I'm been good friends with David Hellowell, who's the keeper of the Chinese collection at the Bodleian. And、um, one morning, I was—I still remember it. I was in my office, and I got an email from David and said, "I have something here that you want to see." And I know that if David wants me to see something, it's got to be fantastic. So I'd finished my work that morning, went over to the Bodleian Library. David took me down into the basement, and spread out on two tables that had been pushed together was this huge map of. I guess I'll say East Asia. It's it's a it, it doesn't conform quite to any of the ways in which we we divide up the world. But it was a map that went from Japan in the upper right hand corner down to Sumatra in the lower left hand corner and everything in between. And David had spread it out on these two tables, and、um, I was flabbergasted for a lot of reasons. And、um, And maybe now, I, before I talk about the map, I actually need to back up a little bit. The Bodleian Library was set up in was opened in 1602, so it's an old library, and it's a library that acquired its first Chinese language materials in 1604. So, the fact that there is this enormous Chinese map in the Bodleian Library isn't itself surprising. And David had taken me through the、uh, through the, the bowels of the Bodleian, looking at the other early China stuff. But what was amazing was that this this just wasn't it didn't conform to any expectation that I had. It didn't look like a Chinese map. Didn't look like a European map. It was beautiful. It's all hand painted, colored,、um, and it, in some bizarre way, resonated exactly with the thing that I've been working on since the 1990s, which is China's. Entry into the world through the growth of its commercial economy,、mm-hmm. and this is what this map was. It was an illustration of the maritime worlds into which Chinese sailed to engage in the kind of trade that helped to fuel the late Ming economy that I wrote about fifteen、uh, years ago in the Confusions of Pleasure. And there it was. I was being handed the illustration of. I won't call it my life's work, but a piece of my life's work, right there, spread out on the table in front of me. So it was—I was taken aback by by the sight of this thing, and、um, the idea of writing a book kind of—it took a while because、um, the Bodleian then、uh, hosted a symposium. This was in September 2010, maybe、uh, no, maybe 2011. The Bodleian hosted a symposium about the map. Because between my seeing it and this symposium,、um, the map had to be restored. It was in deplorable condition. It had been glued onto a fabric a century ago. The glue had dried. The map was crackled. It was buckled. It was, it was your classic sort of、uh, pirate's treasure map pulled out of the ship's hold, and it was a mess. So、uh, the Bodleian spent a year. To fix it,、uh, restore it, and and then then we had this symposium, and I started thinking about the map, and I thought, this is a the questions of the map are, are too intriguing and too numerous, 
and maybe that means I'm going to sit down and write a book about it. I'm sorry, that was a long-winded answer. No, that was great. Question. That was great because it also incorporated answers to all kinds of other questions that I was going to ask you anyway. So, job done. So, so, so there the map was, and, and there are many intriguing things about the map. One, as I said, is that it didn't look like a Chinese map. Rule number one in cartography is that maps are copies of other maps. Nobody draws the world from scratch. We draw the world on the basis of drawings of the world that we've already seen. So, here was a map, and it, my assumption is it was by a Chinese cartographer because it's all in Chinese. So I think I'm fairly safe in saying this is a Chinese map. But it didn't conform to... It conformed to a few of the conventions in Chinese cartography, but basically it was, it was doing something completely different. It didn't look like a Chinese map. Mm -hmm. So my challenge was, okay... How is it that there's a map that doesn't look like a Chinese map that got into the Bodleian Library in 1659? I mean, my first reaction was, oh, this has got to be a fake. Mm -hmm. As you may know, there is a large market of fake ancient maps for Chinese map collectors. Mm -hmm. And um, if I'd been shown this, I don't know, in a, in a market in Shanghai, I would have known right off, this is a fake. But I w it was in the Bodleian Library. It was accessioned in 1659. So the chance, I mean, if it was faked in 1659, even then, that would be wonderful. But it wasn't a fake. It was, it was the real thing. And so I had to figure out, how do you go about addressing this map? And then how would I, as a writer, bring my readers along and make it interesting for my readers to go through the steps that I had to go through. And I just, as I got into this, I found this, the, the, the questions so intriguing and the story so interesting that I thought, oh, I, I've just got to do this. I've got to write a map book. And it becomes, it really does read as a mystery, as both a history book and a mystery. And for listeners, I showed Tim my copy, my marked up copy of the book just a few minutes ago before we started. And you can see... Next, if there are a lot of pages where next to a lot of the um, paragraphs, I have little excl exclamation points or smiley faces like, what? What? That's my reader's way of marking. No well, way. It's great. No, he didn't. I really appreciate the fact that you've defaced the book because <laughs> the Selden map has also been defaced. There is graffiti on this map. And that was yet another layer that I had to figure out what are these little... Latin graffiti doing on this map, and what do they mean? So, this, so I'm glad you defaced the map. Yes, I mean, the I, book. I deface all of my books. It's <laughs> okay. part of my part of my method. But so let's actually start then from the second part of um, the account that you just gave us. But that actually explains how you got to work on this map in the first place, and that is. Why was it at the Bodleian Library in the first place? So part of the story begins with um, the map actually coming to this collection, and that introduces the character that we know of in the title of the book, which is Mr. Selden. Yes. So who is Mr. Selden, and how does this map get to the Bodleian in the first place? Uh, Mr. Selden has got to be the most interesting man in the 17th century, 17th century England, um, and I had never heard of him. Uh, David Hallowell said, this is called the Selden map, I had no idea who Selden was. Um, and um, lawyers might know of him because they they hear of him in connection with Grotius, Huig de Grot, who, who was regarded as the author of The Law of the Sea. So he sort of peeks up there a little bit. And if you've done uh, legal history, you'll have heard of him. But otherwise, you won't know of him. Um, it's too bad. 
uh, because he was the guy at the middle of everything. He knew Joseph Fletcher and Ben Johnson and John Donne. Milton admired him greatly. Um, he was thrown in prison by both James I and Charles I, which, you know, that's a real mark of uh, a mensch. And um, he was uh, England's first serious scholar of Oriental languages. He knew not just Latin and Greek, but Hebrew and Chaldean and Aramaic and Syriac. Um, he's also the father of constitutional law. Um, and I mean, he became somebody who did so much, and it was utterly unpredictable that this should have happened. He was born on a little village on the south coast of England. His father owned enough land to get by and made some money playing fiddle at, at village weddings. His mother was at the tag end of some family that used to have social pretensions over in the next county. But, you know, that was a family that was on their way down. So John Selden was, a, you know, a nobody kid. But clearly he was brilliant because every schoolmaster who got his hands on him then passed him up the chain to a better schoolmaster at a better place and eventually gets to Oxford at the age of 14. He's, he's got no money. Um, and he's really got no social backing either. Um, this is not an uncommon story in the Elizabethan period. Um, all of, well, Ben Johnson, for example, there was somebody for he was his stepfather was a bricklayer. These are people who who come out of nowhere and enter this new intellectual space that emerges in the Elizabethan period, which is make this what makes this period so extraordinary. You've got all these ordinary people. Some of them with good education. I mean, Ben Johnson went to Westminster School. Selden got to Oxford. Shakespeare didn't manage to get to an institute of higher education, but, you know, he did okay, too. So you've got this group of people who are coming from outside the establishment, are thrown together in what's got to be one of the most exciting cities at its most exciting moments, and they just spark with each other. So um, by the age of eight. I think, Selden had decided that he wasn't going to go on at Oxford. Because if you stayed at Oxford, you probably had to become, you had to go into divinity. And he decided he wanted to go into law. So he went down to London, got into the Inns of Court and uh, the Inner Temple, which is one of the Inns of Court, and then um, trained as a lawyer. But um, law was where all the bright, interesting, fun-loving guys went in early 17th century London. And if you were, went to the Inns of Court, you were also going to plays, you were writing poetry, you were chasing women, you were having a great time, and you were making social connections. And so Selden is in this mix. Selden's not a social climber, though. He's really a serious scholar. By the age of 22, he's written a complete genealogy of all aristocratic titles in England. Sounds like a tedious job, probably was a tedious job, but the titles of the aristocracy in turn then become a, a mechanism through which um, political engagement and social practice is carried out. And this is just at a time in which the aristocracy is no longer completely confident that it's running the show. Um, his next book, which comes out four years later, four years later A History of Tithes, is about... Um, how churches collect ecclesiastical tithes. I mean, 530 pages of the stuff, which would um, bore the hind leg off a donkey. 
But this was the book that really got him into serious trouble, because the book makes the proposition that the church has no divine right to collect tithes. This threw the bishops of England into utter turmoil, and and Selden knew what he was doing. He could have written this in Latin, uh, which is what serious scholars did, and then it would have just you know been buried and nobody would have read. But he wrote it in English, which meant that ordinary people, ordinary educated people, would read the book. And the book's argument was that there was no such thing as a divine right of bishops. Well, if there's no divine right of bishops, there's no divine right of kings, there's no divine right of anything. Certainly there is no divine right of law. Um, the bishops wanted his head over this, and it came to the attention of James I. So James I called him in in December of 1618 and tried to intimidate him. And um, But Selden was, Selden was just so genuinely... Well, he was genuinely intellectual, but I think he also had a kind of a, a clever streak to him. So that um, what he did with James I is he just said, I haven't made any arguments here. All I'm doing is presenting the historical facts. Classic I'm just historian. a historian. Right, right. <laughs> I'm just a historian. You know, and in fact, he said, what I'm trying to do is clear the record so that we can put church tithes on a firmer legal footing. Well, the idea of moving from a divine footing to a legal footing was something that most people just could not wrap their heads around in the early 17th century, nor could James I. But in, for some reason, Selden managed to sort of um, bring James over, and they got into conversation. In fact, James asked him to come back, and they had more conversations about these things. And in the end, James didn't throw him in prison and burn the book. He did say he... he the book should not be sold, and he did tell Selden that he should never write on the subject of ecclesiastical tithes again. So he writes on another subject that so, also is of interest. So, well, so, uh, yes, yeah, so, so Selden is not one to be put down, because this is a man with, by this point, he's a man with a mission. I mean, once, once you've got the king's attention, you also get everybody else's attention. And in fact, on his way either in or out of this first conversation, he met the Marquis of Buckingham, who was the head of the Admiralty. And um, also James I's favorite, uh, much loathed within the proper aristocracy, but a very ambitious young man, and pretty smart guy too. And he was having a problem, because Britain was poising itself to become a maritime power. And they had competitors, and among their competitors was the Dutch. And the Dutch in 1609 had just released a book called Amara Liberum, The Freedom of the Seas, by Huig de Groot, better known as Grotius. And that book said um, that everyone had the freedom to travel on the seas, and the freedom of commerce on the seas. But the Dutch were not about to actually practice what they were preaching. And everywhere that the Brits were trying to go, the Dutch tried to keep them out. Particularly the first British expeditions to, to East Asia were happening through the East India Company, and they were running into opposition. Worse, James I had an interest in all of this because he thought he should be able to tax Dutch ships fishing for herring in the North Sea off the coast of Scotland. And the Dutch said, no, you don't. And we have the freedom to do what we want. And here's, here's the free sea, Mara, Mara Liberum, to prove that you have no right to tax us on the seas. So 
This had nothing to do with ecclesiastical tithes, but they'd heard, Buckingham had heard that Selden had started writing a treatise called Maraclausum, that is, the closed sea, the argument of which is that states can exert jurisdiction over the ocean. And, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, I, we could spend the whole hour be talking about all of this. It's no, quite this is, fascinating. This is important. And in fact, the, the book, in it, it, uh, so Selden hasn't finished the book, so he works on the book, and the book dies. He, he sends it into the king, and the king passes it to Buckingham. It gets stuffed in somebody's drawer somewhere, and the whole issue dies, and then James I dies. And, and so, so that went nowhere. It would come back because when he's in prison for the second time, he offends both kings. He offends them because he becomes interested in the power of the king versus the power of parliament. And for him, there is no divine right of kings, and therefore the king should be subject to um, the judgment of parliament, particularly on issues of finance. That's sort of basic to how the British parliamentary system works. And so he stands up to every sort of browbeating by the king to prevent the king, first James I and then Charles I, from putting into place imposts that they otherwise would have been collecting. And he, he gets thrown into prison. Um, he becomes he and he, he becomes the kind of key figure in the Parliament of the nineteen of the sixteen twenties because it's said that the House of Commons goes to him to know what their rights are and the House of Lords goes to him to know what their privileges are and mm -hmm. Selden's the man you go to to sort all of this stuff out. Well, when he's in prison for the second time, Charles the um, First, who wants to become a great European monarch and needs a navy to prove it decides he needs Selden's manuscript after all. So they do a deal, he lets Selden out of prison, if Selden will finish his book. The book is about um, the right of states to exert jurisdiction over war waters that are considered territorial in some way, coastal waters, um, waters in which they control trade routes and so forth. So, um, and, um, so this, this gives Selden this interest in waterways. And this is also why um, perhaps lawyers know about him, because as you mentioned in the book, this is the beginning of international law. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. His conversation, they never meet. He and de Groot never meet. But de Groot and Selden becomes become each other's most fervent admirer. And it's kind of mm -hmm. curious, because de Groot said the sea is open. Selden said, no, the sea can be closed. In fact, both of them were somewhere between those two extreme positions. Mm -hmm. Because Selden agreed that the high seas should be open, and Grotius realized that certain kinds of jurisdiction were possible in coastal areas. I mean, they, but they, they were polarized by the politics of the countries that they were working for. Mm -hmm. Now, this gets us maybe to the Selden map, uh -huh. because the most remarkable thing about the Selden map is that it shows shipping lanes, the routes that ships took starting in the southern part of Fujian, Tranzhou, and Zhangzhou. It shows the routes that go all over East Asia, up to Japan, out to the Philippines, down to the Spice Islands, Java, Sumatra, the routes to the Indian Ocean. All of these routes are marked on the map. So I can imagine that it somehow this map came to John Selden's attention. He would have been fascinated, because here's the... He knows, he knows the sea routes of the, the North Atlantic and the world that he's familiar with, but no one's ever showed him the sea routes in East Asia. This is particularly important because the reason de Groot writes Mara Librum 
is that he's hired by the Dutch East India Company because they, in 1603, seized a Portuguese vessel off Singapore. Mm -hmm. And the Portuguese argued that this was an illegal seizure. The, um, there was a tribunal in Amsterdam, surprised they find in favor of the Dutch over the Portuguese, but they really were on very shaky legal terrain. You don't just steal somebody else's ship and all the cargo. They needed a, a legal argument for how they could do that. So it was de Groot who wrote the legal argument. So in fact, the whole issue, international law starts over an issue off of Singapore in East Asian waters. This is a point I don't particularly make in the book, and I really should have, that we think somehow of international law as it's all about the Europeans being international and lawless with each other. But in fact, the, the, the seed incident is the seizure of a ship off, it's called Johor, it's not called Singapore at the time, the state of Johor. And the, the uh, ruler of Johor is in fact in cahoots with the Dutch because the Portuguese are driving hard trade bargains. He wants to get out of his deal with the Portuguese. And so in this crossfire um, steps these Europeans. And as they do, and as they have to make arguments, we begin to get the emergence of international law. And now the same book um, in which we see this emergence of international law, at least as manifest by the work of Selden in this relationship that produces it, was also the first English book to print Arabic script in metal type, which brings us to... Uh -huh, yes. Um, <laughs> yes, to some of your interests. Well, and to some of the really fascinating material yeah. in the next chapters of the book. Right, right. So as we, and, and, and bibliographers know this as the Selden type. The Selden type. Because Selden... Um, Previously, there, had, there are a couple of, of earlier English books in which Arabic words are written, but they are not done as, I think that they're, they're cast as inserts that you put into the, um, into whatever you call it, the frame, the, the printing frame. Mm -hmm. um, but what Selden did was he had individual Arabic characters carved and then typeset mm. and yeah, it was a first. And it's so you've already mentioned that this is part of his um, broader interest in and capacity for what are called in that period Oriental languages, what we tend to call Asian languages. Mm -hmm. This is um, this is elaborated in the next part of the book as we move from Selden to the larger context in which to understand this map. What's going on there? Why would he have been interested in it aside from simply its? Um, uh, engagement with waterways and how did this end up in the Bodleian. So this right. brings us, in the next chapter brings us right to the Bodleian in the middle of a food fight or right before a food <laughs> fight. Um, yes. So you've talked about speaking of the power of the king, as you mentioned um, before, um, this next chapter opens with James II's visit to Oxford and his healing touch and people are lining up to um, take advantage of that power that he has as healing touch. He has breakfast in the Selden end of the Bodleian library, one of many of these wonderful points where, oh, it's in the Selden end. Oh, all the pieces are fitting together. Um, and a food fight breaks out after he's done with breakfast. It's this ridiculously enormous amount of food and everyone rushes in and starts throwing it at Somebody's each other. Somebody's got to do a movie of this. <laughs> that would be, we can, we can talk about that next. What's next, Tim? The film script. We can talk about who should star, um, who in particular should star as Michael Shin. Okay. So as the king is visiting um, the visiting Oxford, he asks at one point during his visit for a recent Jesuit translation of the writings of Confucius. At this point, we enter into a story um, where we see the emergence of two new characters. That is Thomas Hyde and his 
quote, I'm making scare quotes here, little blinking fellow, unquote, <laughs> Shen Fuzong or Michael Shin. Okay. So who is Michael Shin and what do we need to know about him to understand this next part of the story? I, I had to go to Michael Shun because that graffiti on the map that I mentioned earlier, he was one of the authors of the graffiti. The other author was Thomas Hyde. And this, um, so, so I, couldn't, I couldn't just leave the story of the map with Selden. I had to move forward in time because to some extent that graffiti helped me understand how the English who saw the map might have read it. And I needed to get a sense of that reception because I was sure that reception was going to be different from any Chinese who saw the map. And in 1687, we've got an Englishman and a Chinese, and together they are reading the Selden map. Now, I start the story with the food fight because, um, uh, because it's interesting, for all kinds of reasons, to know that James II, uh, who was a Catholic in his sympathies, was interested in the great translation of Confucius that Philippe Couplet had, had uh, published actually just earlier that year. And as part of the kind of um, promotion that the Jesuits were doing at the time, they had sent Michael Shunt to London with the hopes that he would get to meet the king. He did meet the king. James II was charmed. In fact, he was so charmed that he had Neller, the, uh, the royal portraitist, paint a beautiful portrait of Michael Shun, which is reproduced in the book. It belongs to the royal family. It hangs in Windsor Castle. And it's a lovely portrait. Um, and it's got a book sitting on a table in the background. And the usual view is, oh, well, of course, that's a Bible because Michael Shun is an acolyte. He's, he's a Christian and he's studying with the Jesuits. I think it's the life of Confucius. I think it's the book that he translated with Philip Couplet. I've got no proof for this. So when James II was in, in, in the Bodleian finishing breakfast, the book that came into his mind was this book about Confucius. Mm -hmm. And Thomas Hyde, who's then the librarian, is the one who has the conversation. And in fact, Hyde had hosted Michael Shun uh, two months earlier. Um, he'd been in correspondence with Shun. Mike, now, Thomas Hyde is his own, he's his own strange character. He also is an Orientalist. I paint him as a kind of unattractive, wacky, self-important and neurotic person. And <laughs> one friend of mine at Oxford said, he thinks I went a little too far. But he's a very strange man. Um, um, he loves to learn new languages. He hates to do his work as a librarian. He aspires to be the great Asia scholar of the end of the 17th century, but he, he really he doesn't publish his book on the Persians until but three years before he dies, at the very end of his career. He gets distracted, in, in the middle of his career, he gets distracted by board games. And if anybody's ever heard of Thomas Hyde, he says the author of a two-volume work on Asian board games, which is the first description of the game of Go. So if you're a member of a Go club, you've heard of Thomas Hyde, and you probably have a copy of his description of the rules for Go. Mm -hmm. So he's a quirky, he's a quirky character. He hears that Michael Shun is in Europe, and he has this passion to learn Chinese, because in 1687 in England, there's nobody who knows Chinese. 
He wants to be the first Asian scholar to learn Chinese. Michael Shun is on the continent. Let's get him over. So when, when the Jesuits send Shun to London, he whisks him up to Oxford, and they spend about six weeks together. Now, he brings Shun ostensibly to um, write the library card entries for the Chinese books, of which there are some three dozen by this point, mm -hmm. which Michael Shun does. Uh, he, he's, he's very, very systematic, and in fact... All of the early Chinese collection at Oxford has his writing on the cover because he, he transcribes the name into some kind of romanization. He sometimes does a Latin translation. He might include a very brief note. He'll also sometimes rewrite the title. So you've got Michael Shun's hand all over the early books in the, in, in the Bodleian. And Thomas Hyde was right beside him the whole time. And in fact, we know that because, strangely enough, Centuries later, there turns up in the British Library a folio, uh, excuse me, a file of scraps of paper left over from the time that Michael Shun and Thomas Hyde spent time together. And these are fascinating. He's done the trigrams. He's written out, you know, the numbers with how you pronounce them in, well, in what? It's kind of Nanjing dialect, but he's also got some Minnan dialect thrown in there too. And you know, all kinds of... The, the words that a, a kind of rank beginner would want to know, like north, south, east, west, and, and one, two, three, four, five, and the basic things, and foot, leg, hand, arm, you know, body parts. And so these are all his vocab lists, kind of higgledy-piggledy, scribbled all over the backs of anything. And, and those have all survived. So it allows us to get a sense of, the, of, of the, what was going on between Thomas Hyde and Michael Shun. But Hyde wanted to learn Chinese, and you could see him painfully trying to write his first characters. And to his credit, he's probably the first English intellectual who's trying to learn Chinese. However, Michael takes off. For all, for, for, he's got other duties um, after about six weeks. Um, but he leaves behind uh, great affection. Thomas Hyde thinks of Michael Shun as, as his dear friend and never learns that Hyde dies a couple of years later on, on ship, en route back to China. He, he completed his training, his Jesuit training in, in uh, Lisbon, and was en route back, probably first to Goa, to be ordained as a full Jesuit priest, and then to go on back to China. And it, it would have been um, an amazing story had he not died on shipboard, but he died sadly. And, and Thomas Hyde never learned this, and continued to refer to him as my Chinese friend. So, so it's kind of sweet, and uh, in the end, Thomas Hyde didn't learn much Chinese. But these were, these were, these were days in which the, um, the vistas of the unknown just sprawled endlessly in every direction. And, and somebody like Thomas Hyde was really keen about this stuff. Anyway, to get back to the map, what, 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 what Hyde had Michael Shun do was to go through and transcribe a lot of the, uh, the, the, lot of the material on the map. So Hyde, uh, Shun would put it into a kind of romanization. Hyde would then do the Latin. They'd sometimes correct each other. Um, and you can see there was no, of course, no set romanization system. So in the notes, you see Michael Shun uh, romanizing something one way, and on the map, he'll do it another. And you can sort of see him trying to catch himself from stopping his Nanjing dialect and going back to Mandarin, if he could possibly manage it. So you've got 
the map just, be, for me, the map became alive. The map became this kind of playground in which this two, these two guys were trying to figure things out. So that just increased for me the, the interest and the, the attraction of the map. But at some point, I couldn't just make this, well, I suppose I could have just made this a book about early English Orientalists, but the, the book was actually about the map, and so I had to get back to Asia. And the way I did that was that I had to ask, okay, how did the map get to London? And best guess is the East India Company, and I reconstruct eh, somewhat somewhat plausible logic for why the East India Company was able to get hold of the map and bring it back to England. And so, I, in fact, I do the history backwards. So we figure that out, and then we go back to Asia, and we think, okay, who might have drawn the map? Why might he have drawn the map? How did he draw the map? And all those sort of, the cartographic questions eventually had to kick in, and I had to come to terms with, with this visual object. Um, you know, I had to treat it as a map, but in some ways I had to treat it as a work of art, too, because it was, mm -hmm. it was creatively done. As I said, there were no, there were no, it had no prototypes. It was its own thing. And um, um, kind of getting past the, the, the blur of creativity to actually how he did it was became in its, uh, another interesting task that I had to take on for the book. And as we move into the next chapters, we actually start building up, or you start building up, when we get to read you about you building up the story of um, sort of putting into place all the characters that we need to understand in order to understand how the map got perhaps produced, but ultimately into the hands of Selden, who then bequeathed it to the Bodleian as part of a donation. And so the next chapter talks about one of these characters that's that's ultimately going to be responsible for um, passing on this map to the other people it's passing on to. And this is basically a some somebody who was notably accused of bringing Japanese porn into England. Um, this is yes. John Saris. John Saris. And so there's um, the chapter opens with public furor over the case of this guy. He had anchored his ship, the Clove, so very appropriate for mm -hmm. a ship that's going to be buying and selling things, off of Plymouth to do private business, stemming from his recent acquisitions in Asia before continuing on to London. Everyone's really mad. He's also bringing porn into England, etc., etc. And um, so how does Saris, so first of all, who briefly, like, who is Saris and how does this bring us into the story of ultimately the guy who is the teacher and or the lover of the guy whose son was Jung, <laughs> Jung Chung Kong, who we know from Taiwanese history, it's yeah. craziness. So okay. chapter four, from Japanese porn right. to Taiwan. Right, right. Well, I, and I have to start, well, I, I have to say that the, the, the issues of bringing Japanese erotica into England were just kind of interesting. And I have to thank Tim Screech. He wrote a great essay about this four or five years ago mm -hmm. that I, I, I borrowed from to do this. But the guy who brought it in, John Saris, was a commander of one of the East India voyages to, um, to the Indies. And um, I became interested in him because his name comes up I'm sorry, I can't make this simple. Uh, no, no, no. I his, <laughs> his name comes up in a five-volume compendium of travel writings from the 1620s called Purchase's Pilgrims oh, oh. by Samuel Purchase. Oh, yeah, we can talk about him, too. And that's where I first bump into the name of John Saris. And actually, I'm doing this because I'm, lo from, I'm looking for 
early European impressions of China from the late Ming that I can use in my second year Chinese history class. <laughs> Give them a piece of you know early 17th century something from Europe that talks about the Chinese. So that's what sent me completely unconnected to this other project. That's that's what sent me to Samuel Purchase. And in fact, Samuel Purchase, in one of his volumes, has got some information about China. And he's got two maps of China. Mm-hmm. One map based on uh, uh, um, the, the tradition through Ortelius and Hondius. The other map, which he claims is a map that's come to him from China. And it clearly has, because as soon as you see it, you think, oh yeah, this is a Chinese map. A Chinese cartographer has drawn this. And he says that he got this map um, via Thomas Hacklett, who is his predecessor in the editing of travel writings, and that Thomas Hacklett got it from a guy named John Saris, who's a commander for the East India Company. So that's where John Saris sort of popped his nose over the horizon. Then as I was as I was reading simultaneously in the history of Europeans in the early 17th century, I bump into him again, because John Saris is the man who sets up the first East India Company post called a factory in Hirado, outside of Nagasaki. So Saris is the first, he's not the first Englishman to Japan, he's actually the second. And the first one is Will Adams, and if anyone has read Shogun by um, Cavell, um, then, you know, Shogun is about... Will Adams, the first Englishman in Japan. John Saris is, is the second guy there. In fact, Saris and Adams have to work together. There's no way Saris's operation is going to work if he doesn't bring in a fluent Japanese-speaking Englishman, which he, ha- which he happens to have on site. It's a piece of luck. Anyway, Saris is the guy who sets up the factory in Japan. Saris, however, is sent specifically because of this struggle between the open sea and the closed sea. The East India Company sends him to the Spice Islands to challenge the Dutch, because the Dutch have said in 1609 in Mara the seas are free and commerce is open to all. So the East India Company in London says, right, we're sending ships to the Spice Islands and you guys have got to let us in because you have said that the seas are open. Well, of course, the Dutch do nothing of the kind. They harass Saris at every possible turn. Um, He has to play all kinds of tricks to buy any clothes at all. Um, He's up. In fact, the reason that Saris goes to Japan is that he can't get a toehold in the Spice Islands. So he figures, okay, China's closed, the Dutch are keeping me out of the Spice Islands, where do I go? And he knows that the Macau-Japan connection has become a very profitable trading route because Japanese who want to trade with China have to do it through a third party, i.e. Portuguese or Spanish. They're doing this through Macau, and then Chinese who want to trade to Japan have to use the same networks. And so by this time, the Macau-Nagasaki uh, link is very strong, and so Saris figures, okay, I'm not going to cut my way into the spice trade because the Dutch won't won't do what de Groot said they're supposed to be doing, so I'm going to go to Japan and set set the English up there. And the um, the factory there runs for about 10 years, and yeah, they end up losing money, and they eventually pull out. Another story. Anyway, Saris, to make the story simple... I can't make the story simple. Right. Saris had spent 
we're, at this point, we're, we're in about 1614. Saris had, had actually spent the years from 1604 to 1608 on the island of Java as an agent of the East India Company. Now, here's another guy who works himself up for absolutely, he's, he's nobody. He, he's, he's, he's at the bottom of the rung in their operations in Java. But, you know, he's steady, he's determined, he works his way up to the point that he becomes a commander. This is like, you know, being, being the, the admiral of a fleet. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, like Selden, like Johnson, these are people, these are nobodies who, 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 who emerge. Now, Ceres has no great intellectual pretensions as far as we can tell. Um, uh, but he was an ambitious man, so he works his way up. But in the course of working his way up, in Bantam, which is where they were based, not which is close to Jakarta, um, it's it's to the west of, of Jakarta. It's now just a little fishing village, but it was the major trading point before the rise of Jakarta in the 1620s. Um, while he's there, he tells a story of going to a Chinese merchant who's in serious debt to the East India Company. And making him pay up. And the guy said he's got no money. And so Sarah says, right, well, I'll just confiscate anything I can lay my hands on mm -hmm. as a way of parfait, partial because of the forfeiture of the debt. And he gets hold of a map. That's the map that when he gets back to England, gets into the hands of Thomas Hacklett. And after Hacklett dies, it gets into the hands of Samuel Purchase, who then reproduces it in Purchase's Pilgrims. By the way, Samuel Purchase and John Selden are good friends. They of share they, are. they share intellectual interests, but they have a falling out because Purchase is basically a hack. Selden has written him an account of the early history of the Jews in England. And Purchase massacres it when he puts it in his book. So Selden's pissed off with him, and they break off relations. However, Purchase then dies, and guess who buys his library? John Selden. Because, we haven't mentioned this either, John Selden has meanwhile become the common-law husband of one of the wealthiest women in England. And he has a big book budget. So he amasses the largest private collection of manuscripts in the 17th century, all of which go into the Bodleian Library, which includes the Selden map. And this is a perfect way to get us back to the map, because on the map, and this is the, so I'll just mention the, the rest of the chapter talks about this merchant, Lee Dan, who happens Ooh. to be the Yes, I'm sorry, we didn't get to Lee Dan. No, but well, the listeners will have to read the book. Okay. There's secrets in there that we won't talk about, but Lee Dan, he has a disciple, maybe his lover, whose son goes on to become really important in the history of the Qing in Taiwan, so you'll have to read chapter four to find out what happens there. But back to the map. So the map, um, chapter five brings us back to the compass rose. Now the compass rose, you call, you, you say that the compass rose is the strangest thing about the Selden map. And one of the strangest things about it is that it's there at all. Right. And so right. a lot of this chapter looks at, all right, what is the compass rose doing on this map and how do we understand this? And one of the ways we understand it is by understanding this map in conversation with a genre of texts called root guides, rudders, rooters, rudders, rudders, portolanos, right. jungjing, right. um, root guides. Okay. 
what's a root guide and um, how, and you, you, you talked in particular about a very specific root guide called the Laud Rudder. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is the Laud Rudder and how do we use that to understand the compass rose briefly? Oh, I, I can't do this briefly. I can't do this briefly. Um, let, I'm going to step back from your question and get yeah, to yeah. it. Um, so, there's a compass rose on this map. It shouldn't be there. No Chinese map has a compass rose. Mm-hmm. Frankly, a lot of Europeans don't have them either. So that set me the task of not just figuring out why it's there, but what it does. Why is there a compass on the map? And in fact, then that sets me the tax, task of figuring out how does how do compasses work. Mm-hmm. And as an aside, I think if I hadn't been living in Vancouver, I would never have written this book. Because living in Vancouver, I'm on the Pacific Ocean. And I now um, go boating every summer. And I've had to learn how you use a compass and how you read sea charts. And I think if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done the book. Because, because the only way to understand how the map was drawn is to understand how compasses work. And that's because those routes drawn all over the map have compass directions written on them. So I had to figure out how a compass works. Now... There is, this, there is a lore called Compass Manuals, Jinjing, and the best one we've got, well, best, I don't know, but the earliest one we've got is called the Laud Rutter. It, too, is in the Bodleian Library, and it was donated by Archbishop Laud, who, in the 1630s, when John Selden is in prison the second time, decides that he will become Selden's patron. Of course. And so it's Laud... <laughs> who does the deal to get Selden out of prison in return for Selden writing the Mara Clausa. Laud is also the, the chancellor of Oxford University, besides being the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's also a collector of Oriental manuscripts. He himself can't read Oriental languages, but he knows that um, the future of Christian knowledge in Europe depends on the ability to read the manuscripts that were coeval with the time that Christ was alive. That means the best scholars have got to be learning all those Asian languages, and they've got to be able to decipher Asian texts. It's part of how knowledge is going to be built. So Laud's a great collector of manuscripts. By the 1630s, he's getting in political hot water because he's backing his king against Parliament increasingly, and Parliament is is zeroing in in on him as a possible target to help bring down the king. So he then bequeaths his manuscripts to the Bodleian Library so that if he's thrown in prison, some ignorant parliamentarian doesn't come along and burn his books or throw them out or something like that. Mm Included in his collection is this rudder. And a rudder is a list of sea routes that are described in terms of direction and distance. So it says, leave point A, get on a bearing of 265 degrees for 17 watches. Choose, ch- turn to a bearing of 245 degrees for three and a half watches. Then take a bearing of 217 degrees four, seven watches, and so forth. And so what you do as a navigator, you you follow these directions. Um, where there is a, where there is, where you've got a kind of visual marker, you know, you get to such and such a, an island and then you, you go 190 degrees, um, that's fine. But when you have no markers, when you're doing blue water sailing, 
you've got to calculate all of this. And so these rudders, and this is the earliest one, it's a manuscript. Unfortunately, it's a manuscript that some local scholar got his hands on, or rather wrote out. So some local scholar, he's anonymous, found at least one rudder, perhaps several, and sort of cleaned them up and put them together in this text, which somehow the East India Company got its hands on, which somehow William Laud got his hands on. In fact, I speculate that, in fact, maybe Selden owned the rudder and he gave it to Laud. He gave Laud, he had two Chinese compasses and he gave, no, excuse me, two Persian compasses and he gave one to Laud as a gift. Maybe he gave him the rudder too and the rudder and the map went together. The rudder and the map don't fit perfectly, but they're pretty close. That is, you look at all the routes on the map, then you go to the rudder, and, you know, it's Chabadwa. I mean, they're not, they're, they're not exactly the same. So, in fact, the map wasn't drawn from the rudder. But they're close. They're close enough. Um, so we've got that source to understand. And, and it's interesting that it would be preserved in the Bodleian and not in the Chinese library. Also, the Selden map. I mean, there, there are no Selden maps or rudders in Chinese libraries for complicated reasons. We don't need to go there. But there is one published rudder that we have, or part one chapter is a rudder, and that's the Dongxiang Kao by Zhang Xie of 1617. Um, this is a guy from southern Fujian, puts, amasses all the knowledge he can get about the maritime world, puts it in this book. And one of his chapters is compass roots. So when I put the Laud rudder roots together with Zhang Xie's roots with the Selden map, I get a pretty exact impression of where Chinese ships are sailing in the 17th century. And there's a whole chapter, chapter six, goes into um, some really fascinating detail regarding these routes. So it goes through some of the major routes, the northern sea route, the western, the eastern sea yeah, route. Yeah, that's probably the least interesting chapter, but I had to put that stuff in. Well, it's fascinating yeah. because one of the um, aspects, and I won't ask you to talk about this so that we can get to the tattooed skin at the end and, and all that stuff. Um, spoilers. So one of the really fascinating things about this chapter, though, that I'll mention, it also reveals in microcosm um, a kind of mystery story, because one of the mysteries that you have to decode in order to figure out what's going on in these um, routes and in the map itself is place names. And so there's a really wonderful set of accounts in this chapter of how you go from something called Murder Bay to understanding that that's Kagoshima, or how you go from Fish Scale Island to understanding, oh, that's probably Hirado. And it's, and, and this, these are just two of many examples in this chapter. So they're little mystery stories in microcosm um, that you need to resolve in order to then resolve this larger mystery. So I think it's actually wonderful um, in that way. And I, I um, especially uh, want to point that out for listeners who are interested in histories of geography and place names. And it's just, it's a really wonderful set of accounts. Okay, and that chapter also explains, um, and I'll just I'll just put this out there oh. before we uh, move on to the conclusion of the story. It also explains in the portrait of Thomas Hyde that you talk about earlier in the book. He's holding this document with Chinese characters on it. And mm -hmm. no, early in the book, um, what we heard was, "Oh yeah, they're Chinese characters." Well, he just really like wanted to learn Chinese. He just liked Chinese. Maybe that's why they're there. We find out another element of this mystery in this chapter that actually the Chinese 
script on the document that Hyde's holding in the portrait you talk about a few chapters ago was probably the name for Calicut. Taken from the Selden map. Taken from the Selden map. Yes. What? That's another yes. another of these exclamation point marginalia right. points. And the next time about. you're in Oxford, go to the gift shop in the Bodleian Library. Thomas Hyde is the guy over the cash register, and you, you can see him up there holding his scroll with Guli written on it. Right. It's, it's fabulous. <laughs> okay, so there's a whole chapter that talks about um, purchases maps of China and lays out the... Um, really fascinating relationships they're in. It also introduces Chinese language texts that include maps. And you talk about this text, the Tushibian or the documentarium. Um, you talk about the connection here between not only Purchase and Selden and the you know Japanese porn guy, but also Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Okay, so we've got a Coleridge part of the story. Yes, because Coleridge was reading Purchase when he fell asleep and then wrote, you know, his great in Xanadu did Kubla Khan. Right, and Xanadu, Shangdu brings us right back to the map of China. Exactly. There is there are a million billion elements of this story. The coincidences that, were remarkable, I have to say. It's really one of the fascinating parts of this book. <laughs> So this brings us to the last chapter and the epilogue of the book. The last chapter, um, in addition to including one of my favorite sentences of the book, and there are many, but this is one of, Orientalists were the hackers of their generation, which is going to be, I'm sure, reprinted um, far and wide. It's just a great sentence. Um, you lay out six secrets of the Selden map. So now we're in the last body chapter of the book um, before the epilogue. And these secrets basically wrap up. Um, and you're... you're not just mentioning the secrets, but also helping to um, solve them. And these secrets wrap up a lot of the elements of the story from you know, Coleridge to uh, the shipping routes and all these sorts of things um, all together into understanding, okay, so what is this map? Mm -hmm. How do we understand it and how did it get here? Right. So these secrets. First, China isn't the way it appears and the map isn't about China anyway. Okay. Right. Um, second, the accuracy of the map, sort of the, and you talk in there, um, in that part of the book, about the importance of understanding this map not as a map, but rather as primarily about sea routes right. and drawn primarily from sea routes. And then the land is sort of added afterwards. The other two, um, and, and then sort of the last two secrets, five and six, are, you know, who drew the map? Um, we don't really know, but... Well, yes. And in fact, if I may correct you slightly... Uh -huh. That is the secret I don't want to ask because I don't have an answer for it. So okay. it's 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 where he drew it and when he drew it. That's right. Those okay. are the those are the secret. That's the way I have to do the secrets because in the end, I don't get my guy. Okay. So where is the map drawn Although, and when yeah, is it drawn? Right. right. Okay. Right, right. So we don't really know. Um, but you're sort of you know you give a little bit of a maybe it's a Chinese merchant in Bantam, but. Where was it drawn? Um, when was it drawn? But the two middle secrets um, I want to ask you mm -hmm. about very briefly before we get to the, um, the the tattooed skin, because this actually is a really it brings out the importance of the cartographer's art and also the art of reading a document that you and also a research assistant who worked with you um, mobilize in order to figure out um, both the fact that the map has a magnetic signature and that there's a pattern in the kinds of distortions that you right. find on the map. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. The, um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, all of, the, all of the shipping routes on the map have um, their magnetic direction drawn on, uh, written on them. And 
Um, what I didn't mention is the compass is six degrees to the left, which is the, the, the uh, difference between true north and magnetic north. And that's coded into the map as well. The map is coded for early 17th century declension in, uh, uh, declination in, in Ch Chinese waters. So there was a, so, so the map is, is pretty accurate, but it goes wonky. So on the one hand, it's it's drawn. He's drawn it as carefully as he can, following his compass to get all the lines at the angle they should be. But the map goes wonky in certain places, and it tends to go wonky as as you get out from the main areas. A couple of the central routes are okay, but as he moves away from the center of the map, things don't work. That is, and and you you can you can see him drawing out the lines carefully on a sheet of paper and then realizing, wait a minute, these two routes are supposed to meet in Jakarta and they don't. Why? And so he has to kind of bend things a little bit. The problem he didn't, he didn't know he had was, that the cur was the curvature of the surface of the Earth. The thing about north is that <clears throat> the angle of north is constant as, I mean, if, if, you, if you circumnavigate the Earth the angle of north is, is always changing because north stays in one place and you're moving around. So similarly, if you're in Japanese waters or in you're in Sumatran waters, north is, north is hard to align thinking if you think that the world is just square because north, north isn't parallel all the way across the map. North depends on the angle of the position to the magnetic north. He couldn't figure this out. Now, this is what European cartographers in the 16th century were brilliantly doing. They were figuring out a kind of matrix for turning a spherical surface into a flat surface, uh, latitude and longitude. Our guy didn't have that. So his map is remarkably, it's as accurate as he could possibly do it without having any kind of uh, mathematical solution to the problem of the curvature of the Earth. And um, to his credit, his way of doing it, which is you sort of, you know, you fake it and you sort of squeeze it together, ended up creating a more accurate map than anything Europeans were able to do until about 1650. And then by 1650, the Europeans have a better picture of what East Asian waters look like. But his is better than theirs when he's drawing it. And one of the um, notable things for people who are interested in, and I won't ask you to talk about this if at the end, if you want um, to talk about this, you can, you, we can do that, but I won't ask you to do it. Um, one of the recurring themes of the story that we haven't talked about um, in terms of its contemporary right now, modern resonances, right. um, but we did sort of briefly mention when we talked about international law, um, is that there, at several points of the book, you talk about the importance of claims of sovereignty, for example, China's claims of sovereignty over the South China Sea, and the ways that yes. maps can right. um, support those claims or not. And yes. one of the points that you make at this point that I think is just worth putting out there is that you you, sp you explicitly say that, that though this map, the Selden map, was drawn from the water, it was not meant to demonstrate any claims of sovereignty over the ocean. It was merely meant to show merchants where to go. Yes. And a, a few keen um, nationalists have wanted to use the Selden map as yet further evidence that China owns all the islands in the South China Sea. And um, it doesn't work at the level of legal argument. It also doesn't, the map itself does not show that. Um, uh, there, um, 
there are differences of agreement about whether the Spratleys are on the map or not. I say they're not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people want to say that they are there, but they aren't anywhere near where the Spratleys are now. Um, but so there are some. Uh, the parasols are there, and the and the, what's written on there is dangerous. Keep out. You don't go there. That's dangerous. They're on the map because you want to avoid them, not because you want to go to them. Mm-hmm. And you can't therefore. And I have I, I have a bit of fun noting that China's claims to these islands is based on terra nullius, which is the claim on which Europeans took over much of the world in the 16th and 17th century. And it's curious to see the Chinese making terra nullius claims. Mm-hmm. Um, but, hey, it's an empire and all empires do this. So for the listener who's never heard the phrase terra nullius, do you want to just... Uh, that's territory that is considered not to be under anyone's sovereignty although there may be people living on that territory. Right. Important distinction. Right. Okay, so... Are we, have we reached Giolo at this we point? We have reached Giolo. So in the epilogue, Resting Places, I was looking forward to getting to this. So Bodley's Library occupied the same building and shared an entrance with an anatomy school. Yes. And you have this phrase here, books up bodies down. <laughs> For you go in, if you got books, you go up the stairs. Right. If you got bodies, you go down the stairs. Yes. In the 18th century, the Selden map was displayed on a wall by a staircase in the anatomy school. And what was next to it on this wall um, turns out to be an important part of this story. So what was next to it? As our, The final question I'm going to ask you before our wrap-up, what was next to it on this wall, Tim? Next to it, and, and it's nice of you to say it's an important part of the story. It, it's kind of an add-on, but it's a very curious one. These two objects were put on display side by side in the, as you go up to the Bodleian Library, the Selden map, and the skin of a Pacific Islander heavily tattooed. Mm-hmm. So here were these two, can we call them oriental objects? Possibly. But that's almost unfair to the, to the people who put them there. Flaying for a tattoo was considered an act of scientific investigation. And the chief surgeon, the man who ran the anatomy school, um, was, um, well, we have to get, I I won't go into the story of how Giolo, this poor South Pacific Islander, ended up at Oxford, but he ends up there and he dies of smallpox. And so the university decides that they will flay his skin because it's elaborately tattooed. And it's thought that this is somehow, this is important for scientific research. Mm -hmm. And then once it's tattooed, it's such a remarkable sight. I mean, people who go to the Bodleian Library want to see the interesting things in the collection. Well, the interesting things are the skin of Giolo and the Selden map hanging beside each other. Um, And again, this is part of the history of the map in a sense by accident. But what it led me to do is to to delve into the the history of anatomical... um, study at Oxford, and it was done, actually done originally in the, um, in the Bodley, uh, underneath the Bodleian, and then it was moved over to what is now the History of Science Museum in Oxford, although they don't tell you this. And when they did um, uh, structural renovations in that building about 30 years ago, I found the, the, the documents around this, they found human body parts sort of in the foundations. And, you know, one, one wants to know, did Giolo's body end up in those body parts outside the museum of the museum of the history of science in Oxford, I mean the 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 the, the, the combinations here are amazing. But what also ties them together is that the fact that Giola was brought back to England in payment of a debt 
by William Dampier, who's, who's a, a freebooter of the period. And Dampier um, is also the source of much popular knowledge in the 17th century about Asia. In particular, he's got great descriptions of Chinese merchant vessels. And so I quote those his descriptions of Chinese merchant vessels as part of trying to understand what Chinese captains were doing in these waters and not just English captains. So the, the, the connections and crossovers just, just become wild. And, um, and I, I, think I, I, I term the final chapter Resting Places because I went to John Selden's grave, and I think it's, it's kind of nice to go and find people's graves, the people that you're, you're working on. So I found John Selden's grave, and I write about that. I tried to find Giolo's grave, and there, there isn't one. Mm -hmm. um, his body was supposed to have been buried um, at St. Ebbs, which is uh, where the history of art uh, faculty now is at Oxford, but there's no record of him. So I, I couldn't find Giolo. Uh, I couldn't find Hyde either, though I haven't finished looking for Hyde's resting place. Maybe I'll still be able to find him. Uh, but I found John Sullen's resting place, which is rather nice, and it's, it's there in the Inns of Court, in the, in the Church of the Inns of Court, um, where he made his great reputation. And it's one of the few that survived the Blitz. So great. it's nice that he's made it down to 2013. Well, Tim, we've come to the end of our time, but there's a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to talk about that's in the book. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? And perhaps um, since the book just came out, especially for listeners who haven't yet had mm. a chance to read it. Well, let, let me, let me pose myself the hardest question of all. What's the book about? What's the book about? Because of course it's about the map and it's about Selden and it's about all these, these people. But what I was trying to do in the book, I think why I was motivated to, to write it was that the we live today in a period of some difficult encounter between China and the rest of the world. The encounter has always been difficult, but it's always been informed by the people who are involved in it. We can go back all the way to the beginning of the 17th century, and we, we can find people on both sides of that conversation, Chinese as well as English, those are the two I focus on in the book, who are trying to make sense of each other, and are trying to make sense of the world, and are actually borrowing quite extensively from each other. I think my cartographer had seen a European map by this point. I know that the, uh, the, 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 the Englishmen in Asia were speaking various kinds of, of, of pidgin and creole, and they were having conversations with people all over that world. That the, and so, so the point being that the, this idea that somehow there's China and Asia over there and it's forbidding and closed and, and we have to be in an antagonistic relationship, this is something that, that this is something that's been created in part by the Cold War, in part by imperialism, in part by the opium trade. All of these barriers have been placed one after the other um, from at least the beginning of the 19th century. If we go back before that period, we find, we find that, that people are communicating with each other, they're learning from each other, they're moving into each other's social spaces, um, and that there's a lot of goodwill that's going on in this kind of interaction. And um, so I want, I want people to be aware more than they perhaps are that 
that that we are everything is intercultural and our history is as much a history of China as it is of Europe. And here I'm using R in the sense of, I don't know, people who live in Canada and come from non-Asian backgrounds, but our personal histories cannot but involve Asia at some point, and we just have to look and acknowledge that and, and, and treat that sympathetically and as a, as a resource for us to turn to. Great. So my final question, uh, now that the book is out, what's next for you? What projects is inspiring you or project or projects are inspiring you? Oh, I've got a great tedious project on prices in the Ming Dynasty that nobody's going to read. Um, and I've <laughs> I'll got to, read it. <laughs> I've got to finish that soon. Um, I've, I've got, got, got a couple of things. One is I've got a diary of an art collector, um, Nier Hua, who lived outside Shanghai in the 1610s. I've got eight years of his diary, and I, I, I'm, I want to think about I want, to, I want to bring him to life, and I want to bring him to life in terms of the circulation of images within China, but also beyond China, because he sees objects from the outside world. So that's a, that's a project that I'm having a really hard time finding a frame for, but I'm, I'm, I'm working on the Irhua. I'm also tempted to write a biography of John Selden. Oh, yeah. Um, to do that, I'm going to have to find personal papers, <clears throat> and if I can find the personal papers of his common law wife... Um, if they exist, letters or diaries or something. Um, I'd like to do that. But that that may prove to be impossible. In fact, maybe all the, I've put all the good bits already into one chapter of this book, and, and it doesn't have a future. But um, And if I can... If, if that sounds rather hubristic for somebody who isn't a specialist on 17th century England, right, a biography of John Selden... Um, it's also, my, I'm going to make my little personal plea here, is that we are all scholars of everything. And just because you're a scholar of China doesn't mean you shouldn't be writing about 17th century England. And also just because you're a scholar of 17th century England doesn't mean you shouldn't bring China into the stories that you try and tell about the world. Great. Well, Tim, thank you. It's been a pleasure. It was absolutely a pleasure to read the book. And I'll look forward to talking with you in the future about Ming Prices and Lior Hua's diary and maybe John Selden again. Thanks, Carla. You've been listening to New Books in History. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.